One of the big challenges in DCIO is the lack of real good sales data from the market itself in terms of who's the advisor on the plan, who's who's really driving that sale and getting your, your product in that menu. And firms that have stronger relationships that are able to dedicate more resources with the record keepers tend to get better sales data as well. So they, they really have a better understanding of who's really doing the business with them. And that's pretty crucial here too. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Retirement Space Podcast, where we talk about the business of designing and managing defined contribution plans and helping people build financial security. I'm your host, Matt Smith. In today's episode, I discuss with my guest, Chris Brown, founder and principal of Sway Research, the current state of the defined contribution investment-only business and what it takes to win in this much-coveted space. Defined contribution plans in the United States hold nearly $10 trillion. And while much of this is invested in funds managed by record-keeping platforms, a meaningful portion of these assets are managed by fund companies unaffiliated with the record-keeping platform of a given defined contribution plan. This is where the term defined contribution investment only, or DCIO for short, comes from. DC plans have invested in funds with firms other than their record keepers since the inception of DC plans. Still, it wasn't until the early 2000s that investment firms began seeing DC plans as a source of significant asset flows and began to set up sales and service teams dedicated to this opportunity. Now, I've started and managed a couple of DCIO teams in my career, and back in those early days, we didn't even have a name for our specialty. I and many of my peers, we called it IODC for investment only defined contribution until the industry settled on DCIO as the common acronym. Given the size of the market, $10 trillion, DC plans represent a massive opportunity for asset managers, but getting a share of this market is not without its challenges. That's why firms turn to experts like Chris Brown to make sense of the DCIO space and for advice on capturing their fair share of this massive pool of capital. I'm fortunate to have Chris Brown as my guest today. Chris brings 25 years of financial service experience to his role as founder and principal of Sway Research. Much of Chris's years of experience have been focused on researching and forecasting trends in retirement-related investment areas, including DCIO and target date funds. His firm annually produces research reports on the state of DCIO distribution and the state of the target date market. I don't remember exactly when the first time I met Chris, but I'm pretty sure we've known each other for a good part of two decades, and I've subscribed to his research reports over the years in my various roles managing sales and service teams in the retirement space. So I'm looking forward to bringing you our conversation. Now, keep in mind as you're listening that nothing in this episode is intended to be or is financial or legal advice. Statements and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the host. And the content in this episode is not a paid promotion. Okay, let's get to it. Please join Chris Brown and me as we discuss what it takes to win in the DCIO business. Chris, welcome to the Retirement Space Podcast. It's great to have you here today. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. So, Chris, before we get into the topic of this episode... Tell the listeners a little bit about 
what else you do besides researching DCIO and target date funds? You know, I do my research by day. I've got hobbies I like to do on the weekends or, or after work, or you know, I've got a guitar here in the office I'll pick up when I have a few few minutes or when I need a break, you know, sort of rest my, my brain a little bit. Do some woodworking uh, as well. I've got a sort of a Danish style uh, credenza I'm working on right now. It's my winter project. It's carrying over into summer. I'm trying to get it out of my basement and into my dining room as fast as possible. So so I can focus on the on the yard work and things I need to do as well. But you know, and I've written a few novels as well, a few detective stories and things like that. So uh, just try to keep busy. It's uh, but without uh, you know a long commute and uh, you know a lot of office hours and meetings and things like that that uh, aren't always so productive. Uh, I find the time to do a lot of other things. Fortunately. Well, that's good. You get a chance to take time for other activities. It seems every time you and I talk, you're in the middle of creating a report or researching new topics. So I'm glad to hear that you're finding time for other interests. So Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about your professional background, how you got into this business and what led you to starting Sway Research? Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. Yeah. I mean, I got into the business back in the early nineties, uh, as a broker actually with Smith Barney, did that for a few years, tried to build a book, was never that good at uh, cold calling and, and building uh, client assets that way. Moved out, found myself in a research role uh, at a firm called Financial Research Corporation uh, back in the in the mid-90s and just kind of loved the uh, kind of digging into distribution and marketing and understanding why uh, and how these funds were being packaged and, and, uh, and sold mainly through advisor channels, but some institutional channels as well. Uh, and then in the early aughts, kind of was looking to, to change it up a little bit. I had been kind of managing the research analyst team at FRC and kind of looking at uh, just what was going on in retail mutual funds. I had the idea of focusing on retirement. It was obviously becoming a bigger issue. Uh, I was hearing rumblings about this, uh, as you mentioned, IODC, as it was called back then. Uh, I was hearing, you know, obviously a lot of talk about IRA, rollover, retirement income, these things. So my boss over there at FRC allowed me to sort of form a new retirement unit with a focus on these issues. And one of the first things I did, you know, was just kind of go out to clients, find out what they were looking for. And, and overwhelmingly, I heard about, uh, you know, DCIO, uh, you know, we, we want some information and we want to know what other firms are doing. Where, as I, you know, as, as you know, firms were really kind of, uh, at, back, back then, they were really looking aggressively at this market, realizing there were a ton of assets there to be managed. Platforms were opening up, right? They were going open architecture. They weren't all a single manager fund anymore, these record keeping platforms. So that's kind of how we dove in, uh, how I dove in. Back in 2004, I authored the first research report on DCIO. CIO distribution. And then in 2007, I founded Sway Research and just kind of started doing this research on my own, doing uh, insights into DCIO, into target date, into retirement income. So I just took that retirement practice and, uh, and uh, took control of it, I guess you could say, through Sway Research. Great. Thanks for that background. I think you and I have known each other ever since you started your own firm. So it's been fun to see how it's progressed over the years. Now, Chris, I talked a little bit about how DCIO came about in my intro to this episode, but I'd like to hear your take on how DCIO has gotten to where it is today. Can you give us some context from about, let's say, the Pension Protection Act, PPA, going forward? You know, a lot has changed. You know, even just thinking before, not that I want to go too far back, but even before the PPA, I mean, you basically you had a mad scramble, people getting in, you know, asset managers getting into this space. You even had some that 
had record keeping and still have record keeping, but they also have you know a large investment management business. They're kind of doing you know both sides, playing both sides of the aisle. You know, they've Fidelity, T Rowe Price, Vanguard, some of these firms. They've got the record keeping as well as a DCIO effort to to go after opportunities on other record keeping platforms. But yeah, there was a mad sort of a mad scramble. The attitude shifted from the from the nineties where you had to have record keeping in order to manage these assets within the defined contribution plans to the early aughts where everybody was sort of saying, all right, the record keeping business is unprofitable. We're going to get out. We'll just go at this uh, investment only, you know, with exception with a with a few exceptions as I mentioned. But then the PPA hits in uh, in two thousand six and You've got all of a sudden you've got auto enrollment into a QDIA, which has largely been target date because they are the easiest kind of thing to, to roll into. You've basically, if you know the age of the person, you can kind of roll them into a, a target date product. And you've got auto escalation as well that happens. So, I, you know, I recall going to a, a dinner back at the end of 06 and with a, a bunch of the DCIOs in in, uh, in, in Boston, and uh, the mood was pretty pretty uh, dour. And I thought, oh, I think they're exaggerating the impact of this a little bit. I don't know that it'll be that that bad and and maybe they were to some extent because it took a little while for this to really have for the QDIA and the target date business to really blossom but but it has and and uh, ultimately some of the concern among these firms that maybe didn't have target date products and were just kind of slotting in as a large cap growth or value or an international manager into these planned menus they've they've been hit hard as the target date assets have swelled so you know we do target date research here at Sway and just kind of going back and, and looking at the market I mean back in, in 06 at the end of that year the year that the PPA was signed into law the the average 401k plan had about five percent of its assets in target date funds now it's up to about a third of assets uh, are now in target date funds so it's a lot less assets for the other managers to to, to manage and to generate revenue from. Yeah, so PPA gave an endorsement, if you will, to target date funds and other forms of investing as the default fund. What other issues have affected DCIO recently? Uh, one other is is just the focus on fees, which a lot of that kind of stems out of in, enhanced fee disclosure that came about in the early teens, of, you know, the 20 teens. Fees became uh, more clear, more apparent, more available for people to really compare at the plan level and at the investment level. It was a, a you know, and, and as that came into focus, you, and the data was more available, you had groups of lawyers too, a number of firms kind of looking at these plans saying, you know, why is this plan at this size charging so such higher fees? Why are they using these investments when maybe there are cheaper investments available? And there became uh, just a massive focus on fees. The fees are really the number one, you know, performance and fees. I guess performance is, is first and foremost. You've got to have a good performing product, but you've also got to have low or at least very competitive sort of at at the median or below uh, fees these days to really get yourself into a into a 401k plan or 403b plan. And it's, uh, you know, the, the shift to passive is, uh, you know, because passive management is a much lower fee business, right? It, it's been kind of a massive shift that way. It's, it's, uh, it's grown exponentially. On the target date side in particular, we see it in our data. You know, target dates back when I started tracking that market, Back in 2015, uh, passive TDs, uh, target dates were about 47% of the market. Now it's up to 60% of the market. Active target dates were even with passive at that time. Just you know, a little over seven years ago, they were at about 47% market share. Now they're down to 33% market share. And what active managers have done in the meantime is launch or, or transition some of their active product into hybrid products. So they're, they're trying to bring in passive into some of the, uh, into some of the sleeves within that target date fund to lower expenses. But those really, those products haven't really caught on for the most part. There's a few exceptions out there. 
but it's uh, just the assets are swinging to a few firms with large passive businesses, very low fees, firms like BlackRock, Vanguard. Fidelity has a, a very competitive index product that's generating a lot of flow as well. So it's for active managers were the, really the core and the heart of, of uh, the 401k business 20 years ago. Now they've ceded a lot of ground to passive managers and continue to cede ground to them. Okay, so give us your take on how the individual asset management firms shake out in terms of tiers. Today, Matt, it's sort of a battle of the haves and the have-nots. It's uh, if you look at the market, you've sort of you know with any market, I guess you've got sort of the big, huge conglomerates, the big players. You've got sort of the the smaller players that focus on a certain niche, and then in between, you've got sort of the middle the middle ground players that are sort of caught in the middle between the two sides. And that's what you've got now in DCIO. You've basically got a handful of firms. I call them my tier 1As, but they're firms that have $100 billion, maybe $300, $400 billion of DCIO assets, even more in some cases. They have large target date businesses, which have helped drive the growth and drive that their asset gains over the last decade or so. They have you know massive uh, marketing budgets and, and uh, sales teams and things to support the business. In a lot of cases, they also have a retirement plan product or platform. Uh, these are firms like T. Rowe Price and Capital Group and Fidelity and BlackRock. Although BlackRock doesn't have a platform, they're, they're an exception there. So they, they're really gobbling up a ton of the assets. They're generally positive in terms of the net sales. So they're growing both in terms of positive flow as well as asset growth. On the other other end of the spectrum, you've got the smaller firms, my, my sort of tier three group, I call them. They are more niche players, more institutional focused. They have a, maybe they, they, maybe they have a full suite of products, but they've got a few core areas where they really have a, a brand and a reputation and, and, and a lot of credibility with the market. And so they tend to sort of pick their spots, work their way into menus or into models and things like that. And they, they're somewhat positive in terms of flow. Asset growth is, is, is reasonable. Uh, although not as high usually as the large firms. And then there's the mid, mid group, uh, firms that were doing really well before the passage of the PPA, before things started to shift towards target date and passive. They tend to be doing all right. I mean, they're hanging in there. They're gaining assets generally just, but just through market appreciation. Generally, when you look at the net sales picture for them, they're, they're looking at outflows fairly regularly. And it's tough to keep up. They're sort of being squeezed pretty hard these days by by the by the two ends of the spectrum, and so in sort of looking, maybe in some in some uh, respects for for exit strategies or ways to either uh, sort of tighten the the business a little bit and, and and improve the margins, or to sort of partner with someone and build some scale, perhaps, or, or uh, you know, little little merger and acquisition activity, perhaps, to to build scale and, and allow themselves to lower fees and be more competitive. Yeah, DCIO might be the most fee-sensitive market in the investment world. So Chris, I want to get your thoughts about some specific trends and opportunities. But first, we should interject here and talk about, in general terms, what it takes to be in the DCIO business. You and I have talked about this for years. It takes more than just having a viable investment thesis. Firms need to have what I call the four Ps. You need to have product price, platform, and promotion. So let's talk about product first. Yeah, absolutely, Matt. The product is, I mean, it's it's the, it's the definitely the first thing, right? You, you've got to have a product that's got good returns, competitive performance, you know, maybe a lengthy manager tenure, uh, a good investment process, and a story as to, you know, how you've been able to generate those returns. And you've got to have low fees or very competitive fees, 
And you really have to be in the right asset class. I mean, if you've got a product that has uh, you know, alternatives or, or, or something that's, that's a, not really very plain vanilla, you're going to have trouble selling it in DCIO. It's not, nece- you know, not that the, the plan sponsors don't necessarily want interesting products or products that are a little different. It's more that uh, you know, they've got to explain them to the participants and they they worried and tend to be a little worried about uh, lawyers uh, the, the the litigation aspect of this. If you put something a little different in a plan and it backfires and loses money for uh, for some of the participants, you could end up in a class action suit. So, product's got to perform. It's got to be com- very competitive on fees, and it really has to be somewhat plain vanilla uh, in order to find a spot. You know, in in a menu or even in a in a model or as an underlying uh, sleeve of a target date fund, it's it's generally going to be a pretty plain vanilla product. Style box specific, you know, international emerge international growth or value emerging markets, but it's it's not going to it can't be anything too esoteric. Okay, so moving on, our next P is price, and we've already talked about this quite a bit already. But given the pressure on fees, does this mean asset managers will need to consider creating collective investment trusts, CITs? Yes, absolutely, Matt. Yeah, the CITs, uh, they start with so many things in in the defined contribution space. They start up market and they've worked their way down. And yeah, I mean, it's a way of stripping out some of the, some of the, the expenses of the fund, not so much management fee, although that can be done as well. It it tends to be both sides. You get rid of some of the operational costs. It gives you flexibility in the pricing. So yeah, at this point, to be competitive and to really be able to gain any traction in DCIO, you've got to have CITs. You've got to have management at your firm that's willing to launch the products. Uh, You've got to be careful how you do it as well. Uh, There's a lot of sort of promises made by some of the platforms out there that if you give us this product in a CIT at this expense ratio, we'll get you these assets, right? The assets will flow. That doesn't always happen. tends to happen more so for the bigger firms that we talked about uh, that have large marketing budgets and a ton of support dollars, the smaller firms sometimes get uh, get get that offer uh, from a, a you know an aggregator, one of these uh, IRA type shops that that are aggregating plans and assets out there buying smaller firms, and it doesn't always work out. You know they say you know we need large cap value at you know 20 bips or 25 basis points of ex- total expenses, give it to us and, and we'll get you the the assets. It doesn't always happen, so you've got to be careful. You've got to pick your spots. But you've got to have CD, CIT product, and you've got to be flexible in terms of pricing, really, in order to make some headway in this market. Okay, thanks. Yeah, price is a big one, isn't it? So let's switch gears and talk about platforms. Give us your thoughts on what it takes to support the relationships with the record-keeping platforms. Sure, yeah. You've, you've got to have very competent staff, you know, CFA-level staff to sort of get in there, uh, sort of demonstrate how the product works, uh, why why the process works, how the product will perform in certain markets. You've got to have the software to do the reporting and, 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 and feed the information to them. You've, there's, there's a lot to kind of get set up, but getting set up is just the, the very beginning, right? You can get on the platform. You can maybe even get in a model, but if you're not, uh, you know, if you don't have the performance, the price, and uh, as we'll talk about your other P, the promotion, you're still, uh, you know, you're still likely to, to struggle to gain assets. All right. So let's talk about promotion. In your opinion, what are the baseline promotional activities DCIO firms need to do? Well, you got to support the business with staff, uh, key accounts, national accounts, field salespeople, internal salespeople to work with advisors and platform wholesalers. 
you've got to have dollars to sort of sponsor uh, events and, and uh, maybe marketing programs and things of these these platforms of your key partners. So all that's very important. That helps. And, and if you're not doing those kind of things, then it's it makes it a little tougher to get access to their to their sales force, access to the the wholesalers that are selling their products, access to maybe the the relationship managers that kind of know what's going on at the at the plan sponsors and with the clients. It makes it difficult to to get good sales data as well. I mean, part of the one of the big challenges in DCIO is the lack of real good sales data from the market itself in terms of who's the advisor on the plan, who's who's really driving that sale and getting your your product in that menu and firms that have stronger relationships that are able to dedicate more resources with the record keepers and and these distributors uh, tend to get better sales data as well so they they really have a better understanding of who's really doing the business with them and and uh, that's pretty crucial here too okay since you brought it up let's add a fifth p which would be people what's your advice for getting the right people to support a DCIO effort yeah, absolutely, Matt. It's really crucial if you, you know, if you do have a great product and you think you've got something that can sell in DCIO and you're, you're fairly new to the space, the, maybe the most important thing you can do is get out there and hire some experienced people. You've got to be willing to spend a little money on expertise and because, you know, you bring in experienced people, you're bringing in people that have credibility with the market. If, if you're coming from, from sort of outside of retirement, outside of DC and DCIO, you know, you're not going to have the credibility. You're not going to have the relationships, and it's going to be awfully difficult to to get people to even listen to your story. These people are kind of being bombarded at the platforms, the record keepers. They really, their staffs are under stress to to manage all the uh, incoming. Uh, inquiries from asset managers that want to get into these products and into these platforms. So, you know, if you've got someone that already has relationships, you know, if you've gone out, spent a little money, brought someone in that's got, you know, 10, 15, 20, even longer uh, years of experience in this market, they've got relationships already established, they've got credibility, that's going to go a long ways to getting your product in the door and potentially getting some assets in that product once you're in. Okay, thank you for diving into those, what I would call foundational things DCIO firms should be doing to give themselves the best chance at capturing their fair share of the market. So let's change gears just a little bit again. Uh, Give us your thoughts on the most influential trends that are affecting the DCIO space right now, today. I mean, the big three really right now are, are the target date in, in the QDIA. A lot of asset managers, you know, the DCIOs would really like to see managed accounts, sort of, you know, they call them advisor managed accounts, where it's more of a custom allocation using the underlying funds in the plan menu as opposed to a, a target date portfolio from a firm like Fidelity or, or Capital Group or, or Vanguard, where it's all those those products, right? So, you know, managed accounts has sort of been seen as a panacea for sort of this problem of target dates and, and QDIA. But very few sponsors really seem to be all that open to sort of shifting the QDIA to a managed account. It takes a lot more work, a lot more education of the participants. You've got to get them into the managed account. They tend to cost more money, which uh, leads to potential fiduciary liability, again, with the lawyers kind of looking to come after large plans for high high fees. And you know, why didn't, you know the, the question could be, if you put them in a managed account, you, you think you're doing a better job for the, for the participant because the participant is getting a custom portfolio more based on their needs and their, their level of risk tolerance and things 
But you could, then you've got a lawyer coming in a few years later, perhaps saying, look, they would have been better if you, if you had them in a passive target date fund at 10 basis points versus this managed account at 30 basis points, right? And you've got yourself a litigation problem. So target date and QDIA and, and sort of this, the desire to shift to managed accounts that really hasn't been happening is one issue. The other issue, as we mentioned, is passive, right? The, all that money shifting to passive investments again, because the focus on fees is so, so strong right now. It's sort of fees over performance in, in some in some aspects. You know, the, regardless of how well your your active fund performs, if it's if the fees are, are a great deal more than a, a fairly competitive passive fund, you you might be up against it in terms of trying to make the case as to why your product is better. And then the the other piece really is is all part of this, right? It it, it all comes back to is the litigation issue, is the fact that you've got uh, companies of lawyers now looking at these large plans, targeting them with class action suits. They get a few participants in the plan to sort of to to work with them in terms of saying that the the, the plan uh, investments were you know, the fees were too high. They should have been in a CIT with lower fees or something. They're even looking now at uh, at other avenues, uh, looking at ESG as a way to generate. Uh, legal challenges, you know, saying, you know, why, why do you have these ESG products in the plan? They, they really aren't performing up to snuff. You should have maybe not uh, had so many, so many options on the menu that are ESG specific. So it's, you know, it's, it's, those are sort of the big issues. And then just the challenges in terms of the bifurcation in the market where you've got a few firms uh, kind of running away with a lot of the assets and a lot of the net flow. Got it. Thank you for that overview. I'd like to hear your thoughts on a few specific trends or what might be some emerging opportunities for DCIOs. So let's start with 338 and 321 investment outsourcing. Are the models that these providers are creating a viable source of AUM for DCIO firms? Oh, sure. Yeah. They, I mean, they, they certainly are now. Uh, they're generating a, a decent chunk, I'd say 10 to 15% of, of uh, net sales for, for a lot of DCIOs these days are kind of coming through those models. But, you know, getting in the model is really just part of having a good relationship with the platform. You're not really going to be in the model unless you're, you've really sort of established uh, yourself at the platform. You've developed relationships. You're with, with the home office people at the platform, with the gatekeepers. You're supporting that platform from a field sales as well as an internal sales basis. You've, you know, maybe working with them on co-manufactured products, on, on marketing programs and things. So, to be in those models, it's it's very difficult for an institutional manager to kind of slide in there. They've got to have a really appealing product or, or you know a product that's really doing well. It's really to be in the three thirty eight or the three twenty one program. You've kind of you've got to have kind of a larger overall relationship. So you're getting menu slots. You're also getting access to their business and to the, the plans they serve through the three thirty eight and the three twenty one. Okay, great, thanks. So Chris, here's another trend. We're seeing more and more retirement advisory firms adding wealth management to their practices. This is becoming very popular amongst aggregators, firms who are buying up practices. Is this trend towards wealth management within DC advisory firms a source of potential business for DCIOs? Absolutely, Matt. Yeah, it's you know it's becoming increasingly important important that a number of these aggregators that in the past focused mainly on employer benefits and and defined contribution and things. Now they're focusing more on individual wealth because they've, there's so many, so many of the assets that are in these plans that they've been supporting are likely to move out as the boomers start to retire. And, and, uh, so that, you know, their workforce is getting older. The assets are likely to go somewhere, some type of advisory model. If they don't offer a retail, uh, advisory model, then it's going to go elsewhere. So yeah, they're building out these, 
individual wealth businesses, it gives the asset managers a ton of opportunities to work with them, to support them. It could be, you know, selling product, obviously, outside of plans. But more importantly, it's developing marketing programs and value add and, and using the expertise they have within their firms to support these advisors as they do things uh, like estate planning and, and uh, you know, helping clients. It could be anything, you know, it could just be something like, a, you know, helping the advisor manage the clients in terms of when to take Social Security, how, you know, what type of insurance needs they have in retirement. It's other expertise that they can bring to bear to help that client build the individual wealth business and also that, you know, just strengthens the overall relationship and helps them on the DCIO side as well. Okay, there are a couple of more I'd like your opinion on. So much attention has been given to ESG or socially responsible investing. And I know a lot of firms see this as having big potential down the road. Is ESG going to be a big opportunity for DCIOs? Perhaps down the road, Matt, it's right now, I think ESG is, it, things haven't panned out the way perhaps uh, some of the asset managers have, have thought they would, maybe some of the record keepers as well. It's similar to some other other avenues, you know, things like, like I mentioned earlier, managed accounts, and we haven't really touched on retirement income, but it's similar there too, where you, you, know, you, you see this potential opportunity, you think, uh, man, all the press is going that way, right? They're talking about this thing, There's, the younger investors are focused on ESG, they want to be more responsible in their investing, and you know, so the participants are going to drive this, and, and uh, the whole world's going ESG, and then you know, the flows aren't there necessarily, right? Uh, you know, there's only really at the moment, well, I guess there's two now, one very recent, but there's a couple of ESG type target date funds on the on the market. They haven't really caught on. You think, well, you know, we've got this ESG green over our target date. That's got to make it more attractive, more marketable. Hasn't really happened for firms. And, you know, you've got this fiduciary liability issue now where you've got lawyers targeting 401k plans for having ESG investments. And you've got this whole other sort of public outcry uh, now ESG is sort of being linked to these large uh, sort of global asset management firms being linked to DEI and some of the negative effects of that on some of the workforce. And you've got people sort of, you know, sort of out there really kind of going after ESG in a way, right? It's got a negative, sort of a negative sheen to, to some of the public. So it's it's certainly not a panacea. Uh, you know, it maybe it ultimately will end up being an asset class that captures a, a chunk of the market, you know, I don't know, 10, 15% of assets. But if it does that, it's going to be a long ways away. I mean, you're talking a decade or two down the road, likely. Got it. Thank you. And of course, we have to talk about retirement income products. Similar to my question about ESG, what are your thoughts on the potential asset gathering opportunities in retirement income products? We've been talking about retirement income for a long time now in the DCIO space and the DC space. I have uh, been talking about it for almost two decades now and the, the opportunities and, and there's all kinds of projections about all the money. And, and certainly people have a need for retirement income, but they've also got plenty of solutions and plenty of ways they've been doing it for decades now, for a long time, right? The bond ladders and annuities and things like that outside of the plan, in the plan, right? Which has really been the focus of DCIO in terms of having uh, insurance wrapped products and or payout funds and different ways to sort of have people take income out of these plans. Uh, that has failed to materialize for the most part, right? There's products going back to the mid-aughts. Uh, I think it was a Merrill Lynch uh, income builder or something along those lines that never really worked out. A lot of people have tried sort of adding income into these plans. I can see it like ESG, maybe capturing a small share of the market, but 
it's again, it's not a, a panacea for uh, DCIOs that are struggling to stay net positive in terms of their sales. It's not anything that's likely to generate substantial assets or flow in the near term, right? Maybe maybe a decade out or so, but it's it's retirement income is you know, it's more of a Moby Dick story, right? You're chasing that that whale that maybe they're just out of reach, and maybe they're never you're never going to catch up to it. Interesting, yeah. Retirement income is getting a ton of attention, but like you said, the assets are not flowing into those products as much as many providers have expected. So Chris, if you could sum it up for us, what is your advice for current DCIO firms or aspiring firms? In your opinion, what are the things they should be concentrating on? Sure, Matt. One is focus. Every year, you've got to take a look at your client base. You've got to look at the firms that you're doing a lot of business with, and you've got to look at them uh, in terms of, can we do more? Are we keeping up? Are we losing any ground? Are they a likely target for acquisition? I mean, you put a lot of effort and energy and money into a relationship, and then the next thing you know, they're gobbled up and gone, and uh, maybe the firm that bought them isn't uh, one of your clients, and, and now you're on the outside looking in. There's a lot to be said about sort of focus on a, you know, a small group or, or a sort of core clients, but also carefully kind of measuring the impact you're having there and thinking about where are they, where, what is their future uh, as well. You know, leveraging assets within the firm is another strategy. You know, DCIOs have been doing this forever because they sit kind of in between the retail and institutional sides of the business. DCIOs have always done a good job of leveraging relationships from those sides of the business, whether it's at the retail end with advisors or, or inside of these platforms with gatekeepers and, and analytical staff, uh, leveraging marketing programs from the different sides of the business. If they've got a good value add program, some intelligence that will work with plan advisors, you want to leverage that. Leveraging affiliated businesses. If you've got an insurance business attached to your to your company, if there's ways to to bring that into helping build product either for inside or outside of the plan post-retirement. If you've got a de- retail distribution perhaps linked somehow to your asset manager, maybe there's ways to leverage that to help you gain access with these record keepers. Maybe there's there's room for their products on that platform. So Focus and leverage are a couple of the big ones. Pricing flexibility is another huge issue, I think, for DCIOs. We've mentioned it. You want to have CIT assets. You want to be uh, willing to potentially create product at a a very competitive fee in order in return to gain access to a large platform and and a a block of business. You also need to be very careful when structuring those deals and sort of carefully monitoring them them to make sure you're, you're getting sort of the return that you've been promised or that you, you believe will be there because, uh, you know, you can quickly turn a profitable product into a, an unprofitable one uh, by cutting the fees too much and not getting the assets that you thought in return. And then staffing, right? We mentioned this, but you've got to have good people, experienced people, people with credibility. If you do that, if you bring in the right people, uh, you know, just you know, one person can make a huge impact because the market is sort of small. It's a small group of people that, that sort of manage these relationships at the record keepers and the aggregators. It's a small world. DCIO is a small world. And people know, you know, if, if so-and-so moves from a, one firm to another, they've, they've got experience, they've got relationships, that brings credibility instantly to that, to that firm that they're moving to. So that's a big part of it as well. It's, it's the people. It's also the level, the amount of support you're providing, right? You want to have field sales. You want to be supported with internal sales. You want to have good home, home office staff supporting those, those relationships with the gatekeepers and, and other people at the platform. So there's, there's a lot to do, a lot that can be tweaked to sort of improve the DCIO business. Thank you, Chris, for that. That's very helpful. So it's focus, 
leveraging your best relationships, pricing flexibility, which may mean creating collective investment trust or CITs, and then finally staffing the effort. Well, Chris, I think we covered the topic given our amount of time. I'm trying to keep these episodes fairly short so it's an efficient use of time for the listeners. Thank you again for joining me today. I really do appreciate you supporting this podcast. Oh, thank you, Matt. I've, I've enjoyed it. I really look forward to, uh, to watching this podcast as it grows. And, uh, you know, you've, you've already had some interesting guests uh, on. I, I really look forward to kind of seeing what you do in the future. Okay, that does it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I'll put a link to Sway Research's website in the show notes of this episode so you can learn more about Chris's organization. And if you'd like to check out my other Retirement Space podcast episodes, head over to www.theretirementspace.com. If you found this episode useful, I would truly appreciate it if you left a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. That really helps get the message out to new potential listeners. And you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts even if you listen to this episode on another platform like Spotify or Stitcher. And finally, if you have questions or comments about this episode or have suggestions for guests for future episodes, you can email me at matt at theretirementspace.com. <music>